are going to be studying through the uh, New Testament letter, a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. And as we dig into this, I, I just a reminder, and as we're, <clears throat> we're working our way, we're actually up to chapter 9. The series is titled, Called Out, Called Up. God's invitation to live and love at a higher level. And the whole background on that is, you know, when Jesus rose from the dead and really at that point in a greater way assembled what we call, what the Bible refers to as the body of believers, the, this gathering of people called the church, when he did that, you know, it really changed things so much because coming away from what was distorted, he had, he had set it upright, but Judaism, the Jewish religion, had shifted from obeying God to performing for men. It went from a relationship that was offered to the nation Israel individually, collectively as a people, and went from that to kind of just... A religious system. And so it was fulfilled. It wasn't discarded. Jesus fully completed the requirements of what we call the Old Testament and then the, the Levitical process and the law and things we see. But he completely fulfilled it and then showed this is the means, the covenant, the means by which you now engage with God would come through, according to Hebrews chapter 1, would come through Jesus Christ. And so now there's this new relationship. So you're called out of the world as a Christian, a Christ follower. You're called out. You were in this world, but now he indwells you. And it's, let me just give you this, par this picture, if you would. You live in this horizontal realm, so to speak. We'll think of it that way, temporal. And so in this horizontal realm, there's certain truths you need to know. Agreed? Like you need to know like civil order, you need to know parental authority, you need to know certain things of, of life. That's just pretty simple. There's, there's even truths within this world, uh, whether it be like laws of gravity, physics, certain things that are observable and knowable. Those are horizontal things. You were in that. But when you committed your life to Christ, when you received literally the, the, the blessing, the gift of new life, that happened, your situation will have different details than the person next to you, but it happened when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for eternity, for forgiveness. When you put your faith in him, you, the Bible says, were born again, born of the Spirit. We're also told that at that moment, this, this amazing thing happened. God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, indwelt you, took up residence within you. So now living on this horizontal plane, you are now opened and, and awakened and alive to eternal truths. So you went from just horizontal to vertical, so to speak. Now you're receiving from God because you're no longer rebellious to God. You're born again now being trained as his child. You're receiving from God and learning how to live at this level. So you're called out of this world horizontally temporally, exclusively, but you're still in it, right? You noticed? If you look around, you'll see people still in it with you. So here you are, still here, but you're born, of a, the Bible says, born from above. Now, how do we live? Called out, called up. He's invited us to live in love at a higher level. And, and that's not trying to achieve or attain. It's just realizing, I'm not going to live the way I used to live. 
One of the sad observations historically over the last couple thousand years is when people who profess to be Christ followers, they, they claim to be Christians, but they live in the world. They have no transformation. There's no, no, nothing different in their life. They're still the same person. They just pull out their little pass. Hey, look, I accepted Jesus, so I got the pass. I get to go to heaven. Nothing's different in my life, but I, you know, I got the card. It's like, really? It, it, there's got to be a transformation. There's got to be a change. There's got to be evidence of new life, and it's not work. Some people think, well, what do I have to do? Well, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him he will direct your steps. So, now the practical side. Let me give you some background to where we're at here in chapter 9 and the association even for what our lives are contemporarily. The gathering of people, which we call it the church. The church is ecclesia, the called out ones, formerly just in the world, but now called out of the world, but still in this world. The church they met at Corinth needed encouragement needed clarification. They, they, they needed instruction and correction from God. It's the same thing that we need today, correct? We, we do need that continual um, acknowledgement, not just acknowledgement, but experience of God's presence. If we can gather as a church, if we can live as professing Christians, but we really have no raw street level, your reality dependence on the living God, then we got to question what type of religion we have. Because I don't want religion. I don't know how you are. I've been exposed to enough of it. I want nothing to do with it. I want to experience the power and presence of the living God. The early church needed that same thing. Gatherings in the Corinthian church were slipping from spiritual to social. They were becoming you know, more focused on friend groups or connections or preferences than focusing on God. How do we know that? Well, we know in the first couple of chapters, there's this, this um, corrective statement. I know you're carnal because you're divisive. Some say, well, I, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Peter. Some say, I follow this guy. Some, you see, so they were, they were settling in on preferences and social things more so than focusing on what they should be focused on. I believe it's a common scheme of the enemy. The enemy of your soul, the Bible says, describes him with different um, pictures by name of title or name, whether it be Lucifer or Satan or the devil. He, he, ha he has certain uh, wiles, it says in Ephesians 6, certain angles, certain schemes, certain things that work among people. And so he would love to have you off track where you're not looking to God. He'd love to keep you from ever experiencing salvation. And if you've experienced salvation, he would like to keep you in infancy to where you never mature, where you never really know the power and the presence of God. Well, what's one of his ways to do that? To distract with good things to take believers away from the main thing. Get some good things going. They're just okay. They're good. They're not bad. Social things are good. They're helpful. They're God's design. But if it comes at the expense of the main thing, it's a problem. See, when God's the center point, then social life is deepened. When people are the center point, 
then friendships are weakened. When God's the center point, then social life is deepened. It has roots. But when people become the center point, your relationships actually are weakened, even though they seem to be stronger. What's my basis for that? Well, if you have friendship, and you know, it's my scan, the audience, you know, I'm not like, you know, card reader type scanning, different type. You know, so some of you are older, been around for a little while. Some of you have been around long enough to get what I'm going to say. When you build friendships and relationships, they're good. But when they're oriented around recreation, vocation, or location, then they tend to diminish with time. You live in a certain location, a neighborhood. And then that friend who you're so close with moves. And so you still have a connection. But historically, numerically, those relationships tend to diminish. Why? Because the center connection, the main thing that brought you together was location. The same with vocation. And we know that to true when we go like somebody on your softball team and you're connected and then guess what? You become further and further apart. But this is what I've noticed with Christ-like relationships. You know, I'm, I've said it before, I'm reluctant to use the term Christian all the time because I don't know how that's, I don't know what that is. You know, but I know our Christ-likeness should be. We're putting him first, seeking him. When you have people that are knit together in Christ, you, you can pick up where you left off. They can be reassigned to some other base. They can move to another location. You can, whatever, bump into them somewhere years later. And you still have that commonality. You still have the same point. That's why you, you get having this discussion. Like, man, I haven't seen them for years. And man, it's so good. You see what I'm saying? You can meet someone that's new to you. And in no time, you have a deeper relationship than a, than a football can ever bring. And so I want to say that because it's important. We, we recognize that the relationships are important. But 1 Corinthians reminds you and me of our center point, our main relationship New life in Christ. That is the main thing that every person needs to know this new life. Now, from this new life, we experience deeper life with people. It actually gives you a better relationship, stronger commitment and connections. But it's not easy. Because the only problem we have primarily is, like for me, I got saved and I had this thing called issues and baggage and i've i got it and so that's a part of me historically even though i'm born again and starting new i'm different than you see i have issues and baggage but you have baggages and issues so it's kind of the same thing right don't look at me like i got a couple of you like you were just really close to stink eye you're just right there you have baggage and issues if you don't have it i like to spend about 30 minutes with you with a heart shovel, and we'll uncover a few things. See, when we're not willing to acknowledge, we have issues. We have things we have to work through. We have pride. We have, you know, this judgmental mindset sometimes. We have our own, you know, insecurities and weaknesses and failures. And how do we do life as a new creation in Christ? How do we grow? How do we move forward and not just living at a lower level? Let's consider a couple things. How do we live and love at a higher level? First thing, be willing to change. Willing to learn is one thing. 
But willing to change is something different, right? You can learn something and be completely unwilling to do it. But be willing to change. Be teachable. I hope that you, some of you I know, you've shared your story. You've been walking with Jesus maybe even decades more than I have. And I hope you're still teachable. I'm confident you are because you're coming to church and you're, you're, you're receptive and you're learning and you're growing. So, okay, I'm, I'm getting, I'm teachable. But what do I want to do with my life? Is there any underlying uh, intentional thought, this one statement I want to make sure I do? What if, what if we just said in my mind, I want to honor God with all my life? Because that is not limiting in the sense of just, it's just this one little thing. Honoring God is bringing glory to his name in the way I carry myself at work, in the way I talk with my neighbors, in the way I deal with that relative at the family reunion as summer's wrapping up. Like, Honor God with all your life. Well, how do you do that? One more thing, choose love. Choose love. You have choices. We all have choices. And if I can settle in my soul and lay before God this intention, I want to learn to love better. I want to choose love. See, have you ever noticed that some of your challenges with people is you don't know as much as you think you know? And so when they do something that you misunderstand or is miscommunicated on their part poorly, you have a logical, quote, justifiable reason to push them, oh, idiot. And you kind of think a certain way. But if you could stop right there before the final judgment and go, okay, I don't have no clue what that clown was trying to say, but what was their intention? Not, not the situation, but the season. What's their intention? They were trying to hurt everybody. Really? Do you really believe that? No, but I want to. It justifies my case. No, but what was their intention? I, I don't know. I, they're generally not that tight. They're not really causing, trying to make a mess of things. They're just doing a good job of it. So if you can get to the intention, then you can choose love differently. Does that make sense? It's like, okay. Now, granted, some people do have bad intentions, but here's the thing. Choose love. And how do we choose love? We learn it. You're learning. I'm learning every day. Let's pray. God, we want to dig into your word. We want to know it in our minds. We want it inscribed, written on the tablet of our hearts. But God, we also know that having that knowledge, but squelching or hindering transformation is just religion. We want to be changed by you. We want to walk closer with you. We want to honor you, God. You know our issues. You know our baggage. You know what we're carrying and can't seem to let go of. Most of all, you know us in a very personal way. And you continue to correct us and comfort us and direct us. You don't remind us of our past so you can prove how weak we are. If there's any reminder of the past, it's because you want to show us the future. You want to show us your faithfulness. And so today, as we dig into your word, may it not just be a pattern or a repetition or a few minutes of consideration. May it usher in transformation. May you change our hearts in such a way that we would long for more of you and less of us. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you for your faithfulness. Walk us through your word today for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So to set chapter 9 in the theme and the thought, I want to cover three different verses, four in totality, um, that, that convey this theme. So we'll look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, which reads, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So when you were born again, you may not even have noticed it. You didn't, you know, get another, get an all-seeing eye in the front and one in the back. You didn't work, you never just physically changed. But when that happened, you, 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 were, you were brought into a, a different life, if you would. New life is within you. And this new life, you know, you still have the old life options. Do you know as a Christian, you are not physically or chemically or mentally prevented from speeding? You can drive as fast as you want. You didn't have a restrictor to where your foot would only put so much pressure on the throttle and it always stopped and you always follow the law. You always think you can still break the law. You can still go do those things. But what did we just see? It's just not helpful. It's just not a good idea. Even if you wanted a jail ministry, it would still be a bad idea. So do you see, there, I want to say this because as we understand that you know, all things are lawful, and it means that you can still do certain things, maybe as the old nature of the old person did. But it's not helpful to you. It's not beneficial. Let's consider 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We, we looked at this just two weeks ago. In verse 9, it says, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So as we consider that, you have liberty. We have freedom. We can do certain things, but we, we hopefully are growing and maturing and realizing that the way I used to do it's not the way I do it now. Here's a real simple picture. Those of you who are married, I'm going to go with a deep thought by Dan. You were single before you got married. I know it's deep. It's a little over the top. It's here. So you lived a certain way, single. And then you got married, and that was a new commitment. And by the grace of God, it's a beautiful relationship. It's God, marriage is God's design. So in that design, that marriage, you now don't go do the things you used to do. Because, see, love limits your liberty. And love for other people, as we see here, you know, you, you don't want to do certain things that would stumble someone else. You have the freedom, you have the physical capability, but you have a relational restriction. I can't just go do things because when I go do things, it says here I may stumble someone who's weaker. And if you were with us when we went through that, you, you can catch the context of chapter 8. You can catch it online. You can go to our website and, and find this particular message out of chapter 8. They got in, it gets into more detail, but where I'm going is chapter 6 we looked at. All things are possible, permissible. They're just not helpful. And you can do certain things, but don't do things that will actually hurt someone else, will stumble someone. Even though you have the freedom to do it, you have a relational restriction because of love. 
And now let's consider 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It actually repeats verse 6, or chapter 6 that we look at, looked at. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. That word means not everything builds people up. So you have the freedom to be a certain way, but if it isn't building somebody else, you should reconsider why it would be that way because I don't want someone who's weak. When it says weak, as we looked at in the prior verse, it's not speaking of incompetence or deficiency. It's more related to maturity. So when someone's younger, they, they, don't have, they don't grasp the concepts per se. They're growing. And if you grasp them and then act in a way that hinders them, that's kind of on you. It's not pressure, but it's a relational reality. Now, here we see, it's like, it's, you know, you have these opportunities, you have this ability, and yet at the same time, it's, it, not everything builds up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. See, here's the interesting reality. Love limits your liberty. Love limits your liberty. Freedom is restricted by godly love. When we are willing to consider where someone else is at, then we don't have to be driven for our own desires. We say, well, I can do that. But in doing that, if I stumble someone, I don't want to go there. Love teaches us. We have the liberty, but we also have restrictions. You know, um, when you're limited due to love for one another, then you, you do things differently. That is the premise, if you would, of chapter 9, the, the main principle Paul's going to share in chapter 9, because he does things different than some did, but he did it different because he was aware of the culture and the condition and the reality of humanity and the people he was ministering to. Join me in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go through, one, through verse 18, but I'm just going to, we're just going to process it a, a section at a time. Paul, as he's conveying his choices, and, and he's using his own life as an example to convey these principles. He's literally going to take his own life and talk about the relationship he had with the people that are gathered in Corinth. He had spent about a year and a half with them. So there was an interesting relationship. So God will take it through this principle and bring it through people, through engagement, through interaction. I love that. It's not just written on tablets of stone. It's not just etched in a mountain somewhere that we got to climb to and understand the principle. He brings it in reality of people. This is how we learn to walk in his truth. It says in verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others... Yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So what's he saying? See, as I've already hinted at and we've already studied through, there was division in Corinth. People were lining up in cliques, so to speak. They were gathering under certain leaders and, and finding their preference. And then when, those, when they were doing that, if the leader wasn't doing it, usually the people following their particular leader would then critique the ones they don't follow. They, the word we'll see here in a little bit is they would examine, and it's, it's a word of scrutiny, put to the test, scrutinize. They would scrutinize Paul. It's like, well, we follow this guy. We don't follow Paul because, and then here he's this, and he's that, and he's those things. And so he's saying, am I not an apostle? 
And then he identifies one of the qualifications to be an apostle. Apostle was different than a disciple. Many were disciples, but one of the distinctions in the qualifications that were identified for the apostles that they had seen the risen Lord. And, and so that then definitely made a smaller group to draw from, correct? And Paul says, have I not seen the Lord? Because he, he shared his story. You and I know his story from three different sections in the book of Acts. Three different times God has preserved this amazing experience that Paul had when the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. And when he met him on the road to Damascus, he appeared to him and called him out, really. He said, hey, Paul, or Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Uh, you know, a pretty significant event in his life, you can say, to say the least. And at that point, he'd seen the Lord. He, he understood, oh, man, what must I do, Lord? He, he, he says to God. Well, he says, so I've seen the Lord. So that met one of the qualifications. Another one, I kind of went over it, but let me just touch on it briefly. Am I not free? Paul had no uh, denominational, or maybe we say... Uh, um, Judaism connection obligation. In other words, he wasn't going because somebody paid him to go do it. He wasn't going because he was contracted relationally or physically or financially to some other. He's free to go and proclaim the gospel because he was a messenger of the gospel, a deliverer. He delivered the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, listen, I'm not here selling it. I'm not on something promoting, you know, the first church of the Apostle Paul, and you had to sign up and support and all that. He's just like, I'm free. Free to come in and do it? Am I not an apostle? Are you not my work in the Lord? See, he's saying, you guys, do you not know what happened in your life? I, Paul would say, got to be this, this instrument, this vessel, this conduit, that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought into your life, and you responded to it, and you now have a walk with the Lord. You have a, a maturing relationship with Jesus Christ. I was just merely a part of it, but I was a part of it. Do you not see that that was our connection? Do you, are you getting into all this carnal thinking so deeply that you, you can't understand things simply? So it's like, if I'm not apostle to others, doubtless I am to you. You can look at verse 2 there. For you are the seal of my apostleship. See, he's telling them and conveying to them, listen, you, you are the verification. You're the certification, so to speak, that I am legitimately an, an, a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's leading them to the gospel. If you claim to be a leader, but no one's following, you need to change the title, right? And he's saying, listen, I, I'm not working for you. I'm not, you're not indebted to me. But let's not forget, let's not overlook, we're knit together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you, many of you, I would say most of you, have a Paul in your life, a person in your life that was maybe that instrument that the truth came through. And although you, they may be distant from you or maybe with the Lord even, you, you know that, man, they, they were an instrumental part in your coming to Christ by God's design. Let's not discount the messenger, Paul's saying. Let's realize the way and the means by which God works. Moving on, he then says in verse 3, my defense to those who scrutinized me or put me to the test, it was actually a judicial term 
that those who try to present their case and win, the, win their argument, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Peter or Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? He's like, could we just kind of discuss this a little bit? Because of the way they were treating him, because he, what he had seen in how carnality had crept in and, and social become higher than spiritual within the church at Corinth in certain gatherings. Don't I have a right to eat and drink? I mean, wouldn't that be normal? Wouldn't I be able to have, eat and drink, but yet, you know, can't, can't I not even take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Peter. Peter took along his wife, which I'm not going to probe too deeply, but you figure it out. He wasn't celibate. If you say he's the first pope, you got some problems with some of the doctrine that comes after that. So work it out. This is what the Bible has to say. I'm not going deeper. I've already stirred your head enough. Anyway, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? What he's talking about is when he came in there, you know, and there's this mindset and this division is coming around to where it's like, well, why do we have to support them? Why should we do that? Why should, if they're really serving the Lord, then the Lord will, will take care of them, will provide for them. That's true. If you're really serving the Lord, the Lord will provide for you. And how will he do it? Well, he may do it through the people you're serving. That's the whole point. I mean, somewhere, and we'll get into it here in a bit. Some present that anyone who's serving, say in my capacity or some capacity of leadership in a church or whatever, they shouldn't be compensated. You know, they should be just, you know, somehow magically provided for. I don't know. We're going to see that here in a little bit, that that's Contrary to scripture, what's being said. Matter of fact, he reasons, he says in verse 7, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit. It's like, he's really practical. Can you see this? He's like, how would you ask a messenger to go do this when you don't understand if someone's going to war, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't go buy your own tank. It's, it's provided, it's a part of the battle, it's taken care of. And he said, it goes on to say, you know, you plant a vineyard, but I can't eat of the grapes. Well, dude, you're dehydrated and you're passing out and you're not getting anything done. Eat. No, no, I don't want to be stealing. It's just so illogical. It doesn't even line up. Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? What he says there is, I'm not just a guy trying to persuade you to scam you and to get into your checkbook and your pocketbook. It's just not a guy's opinion. Does not the word of God say this? And then he tells them out of um, Deuteronomy. He says, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? So it's not concerned about the oxen in that principle. No, the principle is presented to humanity. So humanity would under, understand a very simple principle. And so he conveys this. It's like when there's this stone, heavy stone wheel 
on stone and the oxen is working it around and around and you throw the grain underneath the stone and it's crushed by the stone creating your base for you know just flour would you put a muzzle on the oxen while he's doing that because you don't want him to eat of what of the labor and obviously you'd have to say well that'd be silly eventually the oxen is going to not be able to do the work. And so then you're not going to have anything done. It's very practical, very simple. Or does he say it all together, verse 10, for our sakes, for our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. It's so simple, so straightforward. Now, why is this even awkward for some people and, and difficult, this, this bottom line, I can call it this issue of finances? Well, one of the reasons is because in Paul's day, there was manipulation. There was a, a whole scam. There's all these things. You know, they had traveling evangelists. We have televangelists. They had all these angles to get in your pocket. And, and, and it's no different. It's not any different now. You, you, know, you don't have to be a Christian very long. You don't even have to be a Christian. Some non-Christians have better perception about the fraudulent activity of many supposed Christian leaders. That it's just a form of money. It's just a scam. And, and you know, the world loves to expose them. And they should be. They should be exposed. The world loves to jump on that and, multiple, and capitalize and make it known. Because they say, oh, look at this, they're just all in it for the money. You've probably heard it. Maybe you've said it. Oh, I can't, I don't support particular this or that because they're just all in it for the money. Well, that was happening then, happening now. But he's saying, listen, don't throw out the, I don't know where this come up with. because I can't get the image out of my mind. I probably shouldn't say it because then you can't. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's like, well, who, do, who would do that? You would, should, should notice, you know, but you get the principle. It's like, here you have this, but then you defeat you, you your whole purpose. It's like, well, just because there's manipulation and fraud doesn't mean you throw out the principle, which the principle is very simple here. If we've sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Very simple. If Paul and Barnabas and those who were legitimately serving the Lord were there and they're, they're bringing and nurturing, wouldn't it, it wouldn't be unrealistic to think they'd have a place to sleep. They'd be able to have, you know, clothes so they can travel. I've heard certain things. Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Because of the relationship, because who they were in their lives. Notice this in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul was very savvy, very much aware he had the right to be supported, yet he chose not to. Not because I don't need your money, but he realized there was such carnality and such shallow spirituality that he said, you're just gonna, it's just gonna, you're just gonna manipulate it. People would financially support or you know, make a gift or an offering, and then they would have an indebtedness. Paul would have be obligated to then, because they supported, and then the whole Weird manipulation starts into play, and he's saying, "You know, I just didn't, I'm just not going to go there. It's not going. It's not going to happen. We don't want to hinder the gospel of Christ. I've seen too many ministries literally crash 
missionary efforts, more so than maybe a functioning church, which is supporting, say, a parachurch type of organization. But I've seen them crash. And it's very sad because it's a work of God taking place. But wealthy people become the investors into it. And because they've invested into it, they think they can direct it. They can control the direction of the ministry. And they can affect the leadership. And I think that, that is an underlying reality that Paul understood. I'm not going to hinder the gospel of Christ. I'm not going to let this money thing become a problem between you and me type of mentality. Verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Those who are proclaiming the gospel, the legitimate work that's taken place, those who are, are literally given over to this work should live from it. Which is, is in stark contrast to what some teach and what some believe, that they don't support financially the church. They, then they just kind of have their own thought and theory, which is actually a form of greediness and selfishness that's supported by their own opinion. It just say, listen, and, and, and why would people become suspicious? Why would people be reluctant to support the work of ministry? Because you're smart. Because you've seen manipulation. You, you've seen not just the, the distant accounts of extreme fraud, but you've seen it at different levels. And so I believe it's, it's wise to say, okay, wait a minute. Let's verify. Let's make sure that this is a legitimate work. Even though it says here that you should be, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Uh, one reference that you could look to is when he sent the, the disciples out, he told them, don't take anything with you. He's going to send them out to go to these various villages, and so you and I are going to go, honey, where's my backpack? Why? Well, I'm, I just kind of loaded down with some you know, jerky and some power bars and you know, some other stuff. I've got to have some stuff because I'm going on this journey. And he said, don't worry about it. When you come to a place, they'll provide for you. They'll take care of you. When they offer you a meal, that they're needed. Matter of fact, he warned them, don't go work in the village for a better deal. You can dig into that on your own, but that's basically what he said. Just where you go, just let them take care of you. So the Lord commanded it. I look at my own life and, you know, I, I'm not in any way trying to parallel and come alongside Paul, but this principle... This passage of scripture was very foundational for me as a church leader. It was, it, it, it was essential to understand that I, I needed to be able to take care of my family. And yet at the same time, I was wise enough to know, you know, people have just been worked. And I would rather work with my hands and I'd rather do what I have to do in the season that I'm in to be able to do what I need to do. And so very candidly, I'm not in any way complaining. I'm just reminiscing. You know, we had, when we started out here 24 years ago, you know, there was just a small number of people. And, and it, was, it took a while to get things going and to get on our feet. And God's always been faithful. But we had, you know, quote, if you would, the right to say, man, we got to pay our bills. But then I also understood where some people were coming from. And so over the first little over a decade, a little more now. We, we ended up refinancing our own house like three times. 
to be able to, to keep on course and just do what you needed to do. And we just knew that was of the Lord. It wasn't like, oh, great, now we got to do this to stay afloat. No, it was okay. We've seen that's God's hand. That's how, how he provided. He took care of things. And even as we continued on and, and we realized that this happens in this gathering of people called Calvary Chapel Mountain Home, because it happens everywhere. People would come here and then they'd drive by our house to see where we lived, to see how much we're yucking it up. And they kind of went yuck a little bit. Because our first house on 10th, like we were like four clicks above ghetto. I thought it was two, but I think it was actually four clicks above. It just wasn't, I mean, it, it was a wonderful house. We, I have, we have awesome memories of 10th Street. Fantastic house. But it just isn't like, really? If he's blessed, why is he living in that mess? You see what I'm saying? Because some people teach you, the more God is in, you're in God's favor, the more blessed you are, the more faithful you are, the more extravagant your living place. And so people in this gathering... We'd go by our house and check it out just to see. And I commend them, and you, because some of you did it. I commend you. That's wise. I am no way complaining, because you should check. Now, when we were on 10th Street, it was like, well, okay, must be a humble guy living in that hole. No problem. But then, then, oh, dude, we moved to the land of legacy. <laughs> we moved over to legacy by Legacy Park. Like, dude, there are now... Something's going on. So they heard, oh, I live over my legacy. I know this because people have conveyed this to me. It's, a, it's just a wonderful friendship story. Like, oh, we heard you lived over my legacy. So we drove over there and we're like, you're just barely by legacy. Okay, you're, you're like in the low budget entry legacy level. You know what I mean? And so you think about that. Why would you be compelled to do that? I believe in the purest form because you're smart. You want to know, is this legitimate? Is there something going on? And then as you kind of sort it out, hopefully you say, okay. There's, there's nothing obvious on the outside. It, it's, it's a certain measurable. And, and I believe, I'm just parallel, and I'm not saying it's equal to what Paul went through himself, but I'm just conveying to you, there's a point where you, you got to kind of sort it out. And when you see it's legitimate, then you got to say, well, what part am I in this? What part am I a part of this overall work? Not just support of those who are you know, serving in certain capacities. But how, how do I honor the Lord? Because he goes on to say in verse 15, I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. So what he's saying here, as he's conveying that these things are there, he's saying, listen, don't get me wrong, and I want to say that for myself. Don't get me wrong. He's not working the crowd in a back way. So he's saying, I'm not, I'm not telling you this there in verse 15. I haven't done these things or written these things that it should be done so. So, so you kind of start financially supporting me. He's just saying, listen, i just telling you straight up. This is how it went. This is how it was. And I don't want to be indebted, financially constrained to any particular group or person. Lest my boasting be void. Is it okay to boast? Is okay to kind of brag? Well, the word speaks of, of glorying, glorying. Paul gladly shared what God had done in Paul's life. He's not boasting that he did something and he always did it right and got it all figured out. If you read Romans, he's like, oh my goodness, 
The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those things I do. Who can deliver me from this body of death? What a wretched man I am. He understood himself. But he didn't deny the work God had done in his life. But here's the key. Paul did not take credit. Rather, he gave the glory to God. So, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of what God has done in your life. But, do not be ignorant of what God has done in your life as well. See, here's the challenge. To stop long enough and hit pause on the busyness of life and reflect back and go, wow, God has really been faithful. You're not spinning it to make the Bible look right. You're not just saying it so you can share a testimony in some group. You're just reflecting them in. Forgive me, Lord, I've been kind of so busy. I didn't really pause and recognize your faithfulness, your kindness, your goodness, your correction. You have been so faithful. If, if you were to, say, uh, be invited to a, say, we'll say a small group because it's usually more conversational. Hey, you want to join the small group? We're going to meet on Thursday, just this one night. Come over to the house. We'll kick back. Just want to hear the things God's done in your life. You're like, oh, man, I really want to go because, boy, they really serve good desserts. So, yeah, I want to go. I do want to go. You commit to it. Okay, I'll go. But then before Thursday, you're thinking, what am I going to share? What am I going to say? And then you stop. Like, oh, man. Remember when that medical thing was so severe and it got worked out? God took care of it. Remember that financial stress that just we just about had to move in with relatives and see how God did it? Remember that time we had to move in with relatives and we actually liked them? It was like, wow, God. Just, literally, you cannot, because you're getting ready for the Thursday thing, but you're being, I don't ever want to get where I'm ignorant of the faithfulness of God and it's always risky, even as a pastor. And so I want to encourage you, do not be ashamed of what he's done. He goes on to say in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It's not a vocational thing. It's not a mandate. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a love and a reality thing. Preach means to... Uh, to announce or to declare, to, to bring the good news, the God news. And so it's really simple in your life and my life. When you have it, you want to share it. If you have something bad, I hope you don't want to share it. I hope you want to just take it out of the fridge, ignore the gray mold, throw it in the trash. You're done with it. But we have some good, and you know it's really good, and you know they would benefit from the good that you have, by necessity, relationally, by love, I have got to share this somehow. I've got to convey this. The more you realize the gospel, the good news of God, its power, its hope, the forgiveness, the genuine, real, God-empowered through God's presence, transformation, new life, the more you want to announce it. So you see what Paul's saying? Listen, I, Necessities laid upon me. I can't, in good conscience, relationally, not tell you the things that I know to be true. I just can't. That's why some of you are willing to do it, and your 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 relatives don't ever invite you back. 
or coworker doesn't want to talk to you anymore. Hopefully you weren't poor in your communication, hopefully you're passionate about the truth you know, but as you shared it, you know, many are going to, they're going to chew on it. They're going to, they're going to think about it. Because how could you not share it if it's so important to us? How could it not be important if it's changing us? It's so cool because just it, it frees us from the obligation to, to share the gospel. You are not obligated to share the gospel out of some type of doctrinal legal requirement. You are obligated through the liberty of love. Through love, you find yourself, I want to be able to say this. Now, Paul was so real. He said, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. If I'm obedient in the gospel, I know God is, he's just a just God. And he, we see in Corinthians later, we'll see how he speaks of, you know, the, the jewels in the crown and such that are not works, they're just a reality. But notice what he says is so practical. If I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with stewardship. What's that mean? I've been entrusted with this truth. I don't want to share it. Shut up and do it anyway. That's the way Paul would say it if it was in a men's group. He'd just say, listen, if you're only going to do this when you feel like it, how important is it to you? If you realize, I've been I have been entrusted to this. You know, I, I, it's so weird because people are like, whoa, you look, seem so at ease on stage. I just don't like being in front of people. I love preparing a message for myself, with myself, by myself, Seeking the Lord. I love being up in the hills. I was up at Pine, and I was under this beautiful pine tree, sitting on a four-wheeler, and it's raining all around, and I'm dry as can be. I'm just absolutely loving life. But I got I to gotta kind of come back and share that. That's why I'm there, so I can come and share. But my natural self is not, I don't, I don't enjoy being in front of people. But after four or 5,000 messages and, and doing it, I realized, yeah, Whatever. It's worth it because I know if I can somehow be an instrument that God can bring the truth forward through, even when I don't feel like it, I still need to do it because I'm entrusted with it. I have this. You have something that you know people need. And so I don't get to say, well, you know, post it on Facebook. We're not going to have church this weekend. I don't feel like it. I, you know, I, for a long time, I... I I went through some various challenges. I had a state or chair back here for quite a while. And, and it's because second service, I had to be like this because I had some certain health issues that were a bit of a challenge. So I had to hang on or sit down. And I'm not saying that, saying, oh, poor little pastor. I'm just saying I, I didn't get to stay home. I didn't get to say, oh, I don't feel good. I'm not wired that way. I just, sometimes I sat down behind between services I just shut the lights out. I literally laid under my desk because it was darker there and it would clear the headache. And I set a timer so that we actually had second service. Why am I saying this? There's just sometimes you just, it's so important to us as people. And, and don't think that you have to go out and badger and thump people with the Bible and carry on crazy. But realize, man, there's just, it's so important. It's so important. I really, it's so important. It's the truth of eternity. It's reality. So Paul says, listen, even if I don't feel like it, I've been entrusted with this. You guys, you would, if you're something monetary and a value, an heirloom, and you're, you're guarding it, you're, you're going to take care of it because you know the value to it. And you know the value as we grow, which is what this letter is about. 
followers of Christ growing in this beautiful life he's given us. As we grow, we just share. Now Paul in verse 18 says, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul was very in tune with culture, with the carnal ways of people. And he understand, understood in that first century in that church, there would be people that would, would charge him or they'd make accusation against him. He understood that these things were going to take place. He didn't then shy away. He was very cautious. Compassion with caution. Empathy with awareness. He just shows, you know, I'm still going to go to those people. I'm still going to do it. Because you have a model. I have a model. Not only can we look at Paul's life as a beautiful model, but Jesus was wrongfully accused. He had things charged against him. He was, he was accused of things that he didn't do. And that is the scheme of the enemy. He will always make attack on your character. He will do certain things to, to disrupt or even to, to remove your declaration of the gospel. So realize that. It doesn't mean you don't fight. It just means you know how to fight. You, are, you start going, okay, this, I'm going to deal with this. So in that regards... It's God's desire that his children grow. Can we agree with that? That's a physical parallel to parenting and raising children. Nobody says, oh, I want, I want, the little, I want my little baby just to stay here. Well, of course, moms do, but then they wake up. It's like, oh, I just love them. They're just oh, such a, so cute little toddlers, you know. Yeah, but every so often they stink. And you've got to change things, you know, literally. Do you want to deal with that for like 50 years? Because they get bigger and stinkier. Seriously. So it's like, no, you, it's just natural to you go, I want them to grow. I want them to get their balance. I want them to experience walking. I, I want to have a conversation with, without a tippy cup. You know, I just want to, you know, you just, just, it's, it's normal. It, would it be abnormal for God to expect? Because he gives us that imagery, that relational uh, vocabulary. It, would it be odd for him to expect his children to grow? And not only does he look forward to our growth, he nourishes it. He actually offers the opportunity to grow. And so with that in mind, realize, how do we grow? Quick review. We looked at it once. We're going to look at it one more time. How do we live and love at a higher level? Be willing to change. I believe that as we went through this message, some of you have been convicted or perhaps encouraged. Um, some of you have been, there's something that's stuck out. Maybe it's in regards to finances. Maybe it's in regards to relationship. Maybe it's in regards to communication and conversation and how you convey the gospel, whatever. Are you willing to change according to the word of God? Are, are you teachable? Can the idea that, ooh, maybe we're not on track, maybe we're out of sync, can you now learn from the word of God? Can the Holy Spirit now direct you through? Because you're going to leave here, and I'll be done in about 45 minutes. You're going to leave here. Just kidding. I'll be done quicker. You're going to leave here. You're going to have probably, unless we're raptured out of here, you go home independently. I mean, separately to be with the Lord. You're going to go home and think about these things. I hope. I hope that there's something ruminating and resonating. You're like, hmm, that's personal from God to you. That specific thing. Think about it. Are you teachable? Are you willing in that area to honor God with your life? You know, uh, willing to change, be teachable.
Choose love. Choose love. I think this, these things are so key to, to, to growth and our own uh, maturing in the Lord. I'd like to have the worship team come back up. We're going to close out with 2 Corinthians 13. We have another letter after our one we're on here, 1 Corinthians. Um, we may do it in succession as we wrap up 1 Corinthians eventually. But the last of the letter, chapter 13, the last chapter and the last verses of it, are kind of, I always see in a, maybe a natural way, the kind of the final exhortation. Summarizing 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and packaging it all together. And, okay, so here's the, here's the thing I would say, Paul may say. The Holy Spirit may remind the church in Corinth and the church in contemporary times. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Will you stand with me and we will close out our time of worship with prayer and worship by way of song. God, as we have been able to sit here today and soak it in and most of all, allow you to speak to our hearts, to stir up and remind us or reveal to us what you would have us to know. Thank you, God. And if you're here and these things are happening and, and you are not, by your own understanding, by your own even description, you are not yet born again. I would ask you, if you, if you would have to answer that question is, no, I'm not. I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? I encourage you at this moment, even as I would lead in prayer, you would respond in your own heart, knowing that you're not responding audibly to me, speaking to the very heart of God. You would say, and you would really, in your own assessment, agree with God. God, I know I've done wrong. I know, I know. I've been resistant, but more than resistant, I've been rebellious to you. I have not followed your design for my life. I have not lived in a way that honors you. And I ask your forgiveness. I ask that you would give me this new life that you speak of. Show me what it is, what it is about. I would start by first admitting I need you. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I put my trust in you. Teach me now this new life. Show me how to live. Protect me from religion and, and even the coercion of men. Holy Spirit, nurture and raise me from infancy to maturity. Teach me, oh God, I put my trust in you. Help me to understand these truths, to walk in this new life, to be transformed for your glory. God, I would just say, trusting I'm speaking, I know I'm speaking for myself, but for all of us, we request the same. That you, God, would finish the work you've started in our lives for those of us who have previously committed our lives to you. We know this born-again reality. We've experienced your forgiveness. We're learning to walk with you. Lord, help us to let go of the past and press forward from this day, seeking to be changed by you, to be freed from those things that have entangled us, and to affix our eyes upon you, Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith. Our trust is in you. We sing this song to you with joy and gladness. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.